Well, good evening, everybody. Evening. That was uh, that was fantastic. I was trying to save my voice a little bit, but I was kind of giving it. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. All right, so we're going to carry on from, uh, from last week. We're going to look at the rest of the impact verbs that we value. And, uh, you know, before, let's just do a quick little recap. So we're talking about the family business. And uh, listen to this verse here, Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Jesus, he says to them, so he, Jesus, his family's gone to Jerusalem. And uh, he's, he's taken off. He's run away from home or whatever. He's run away from his family. And, uh, and they go looking for him, and they, and they catch up to him. And, and, and he says to his parents, he says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Isn't that amazing? It's like, where else would I be? Like, duh. Like, I'm engaged in something. Like, I'm at my father's house, and I'm doing his business because that's what you do. Like, you shouldn't be surprised by this. And I love that he says it's his father's business. It's not the CEO's business. It's not like the, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts. That's the, that's the name for God used the most in the Bible. And Jesus comes along and says, Father. I'm, I'm about my father's business. I love that so much. So he was engaged in his father's business. And so are we. And in week number one, we, uh, we learned that, it, that it's the church that God has chosen to be the vehicle through which he would fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. We've heard about how that's the, that's the mission statement of heaven. When we talk about the family business, what we're talking about is seeing the whole of the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And it even goes beyond that. In Ephesians 1, it says that Jesus is filling everything in heaven and on earth. It's cosmological in every sense. It's not just planet Earth, it's heaven, it's the heavens and all that stuff. It's everything that's out there filled with Jesus. But this planet right here has a glorious, amazing future. And he's decided that he would fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. And that decision that he made, it, it, it was a goal. It was a decision that was born right out of the love that God has in the Trinity, which is fantastic. See, God has this cosmological uh, plan to fill heaven and earth with the knowledge of his glory. And that's not like some sort of egotistical impulse, like everybody needs to know how awesome I am. It, it's this, this, uh, this beautifully uh, driven purpose by love, by the love that's in the Trinity. It's like the Father is like, man, I love the Son so much, I'm just going to pour everything that I am into Him. He says, it pleased the Father that in Him would dwell the, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the Father's like, man, I love you so much, I just want to give you everything that I am. And then Jesus is like, wow, you're so awesome. Who you are, it's so great. I got to take this and I got I to make it known everywhere. And the Holy Spirit is just zipping around saying, let's do this. And he's ready to go. So, I mean, there's this beautiful plan and it's the eternal plan. And we see this in the heart of God that he chose the pe people. He chose to make people and uh, humanity and lift us up and elevate these people that he made out of the dust of the earth and take us and bring us all the way to be in the middle of that community, seated with Christ in heavenly places in the very throne where he said, isn't that crazy? That, that, what a good plan. And it says in Ephesians 3, 10 to 11, it says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom and its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan. Eternity has no beginning. It has no end. God has always thought about us. He's always wanted to do this. He, it's always been his intention. We weren't just like, okay, well, I'm going to make humans and they're going to fall and then I'm going to create these special called out people. But we were in his heart and in his mind before he created anything yeah. eternally. That, that's just amazing that we get to be part of this and we get to play such an amazing front and stage role in this whole thing that he's doing. I mean, what is man that he's mindful of him? Wow, that's crazy. All right, so the second week, we looked at uh, what makes us at Impact Church unique and distinct. We looked at our, our priorities, our beliefs that reflect the, the revelation and the impartation of Christ in this distinct body. See, the church universal, the church all around the world, the church in China, the church in, in Australia, those churches are engaged in this cosmological uh, purpose. The church down the road is, too. God's called everybody, and, and, and he's decided that through the whole of the church, through Christ in you, the hope of glory, you as in not just us in this room, but all the believers on planet Earth, and throughout time, actually, all the believers, he's chosen that he's going to do this. And, uh, but, but each church, churches have a distinct character. They really do. So like, if you look in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that there's seven different churches, seven different uh, fellowships, but they're all pretty close to each other. 
And Jesus has something different and distinct to say to each one because they've got a different culture. They've got something something that's going on in in their in their midst. And uh, although they're close, they've got the same cosmological purpose that they're engaged in, the same eternal purpose. They're there's they're different, and that that's okay actually in a lot of ways. It's totally okay. So each church, you, you got to know as, as a fellowship to, to function, really, you got to know who you are. You got to know what, what is it? What is the revelation of God that he's put in us as a body of people? What, what are the unique expressions of his life that's in us? And you got, you got to know it. You got to own it. And some, for us, these are authentic love. I mean, isn't it weird? Apostle Paul says you can, you can be known for a whole bunch of things. You can do the most amazing feats, but if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. You're basically nothing. So we're, we're a place of authentic love. The, the, the greatest commandment, the first commandment, the new commandment, however you want to spin it, whatever you want to talk about it, God's priority is love. Yes. Amazing grace. We are what we are by the grace of God. Anytime Almighty God makes a movement towards us to give us something or even look in our direction, it's the grace of God. So what, what we are, who we are, what we have, everything he does towards us, it's grace. And it's received and, and laid hold of only by faith. So faith's a really big deal. We're not into works. We're not into trying to earn and perform and, and try and twist God's arm. We're into purposeful mission, equipping ministries. Because really, the star of ministry in the city of London, southwestern Ontario, across the country and even the world, the star of ministries is, is everybody. Everybody out there, right? Like, it's all about being equipped and equipping and then going and doing the ministry out in the, out in the world. We're all about vibrant gatherings, uh, lively, full of life. And, and that means that there's signs of life. There's vital signs. There's signs that the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus, he's here. He's doing stuff. People are, people are getting saved. People are getting healed. The presence of God is here. Tonight, what a vibrant sign of the life of God. Do you just feel Jesus? He's here. He's moving amongst us. He's here. And then intentional excellence. And I, I actually really, really love this about us because we do things on purpose. And, and we really do put a lot of thought into what we do and, and do it on purpose and, and look to do the best that we can with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not kind of whimsical. It's just on purpose, intentional, deliberately, which is really, really cool. So like I said, the churches, all churches, they're engaged in this, this, this cosmological purpose. But these are things about us that make us us. These are things that, you know, they say that you can catch things, you can be taught things, and you can catch things. You hang around here long enough, these seven things will start to uh, shape you. You'll start to own them. They'll start to be part of, of who you are and, and how you see Jesus. And, you, and you'll see, you know, if God has set you in this body, these things that he has set in his body, you're going to start to find these become priorities and beliefs for you personally. And all of a sudden, you start to find that you're flowing in the same mind. We, together, have the mind of Christ. And you start flowing in this together. And, and it's actually really beautiful when you see it happen. So week three. Last week, we looked at uh, the first uh, four of our values. And, and I hope you were able to see how they, they interconnect. You know, the more as we go along here, you, you'll be able to see how one week flows from the next. So last week, hopefully, you were able to see that some of the values that we have actually do really connect and come right out of those priorities and those beliefs, which in turn all connect with the cosmological, the big, the eternal purpose of God. They shape our, the, the, the value or the, the priorities and the beliefs that we have, they, they shape our values, what we do, and, and how we do it, why we do it, which is also another reason why these verbs are, or these values are verbs we value, because they're, they're, they're things we do. Things we do that come out of what we believe, that come out of the priority. So we looked at uh, enjoy. We looked at how uh, we want everything we do to be completely infused with the joy of the Lord. Every, it's fun, right? If serving God's not fun, if your relationship with him's not fun, what the heck? <laughs> like, seriously. Like, everybody out there is chasing after fun. You should have fun in the house of God. You really should. And... The relationships that we have should be fun. We should be able to find people when you come to church that you can have fun with and enjoy. We, we talked about connect and how connect is actually a really, really big deal. See, a lot of people, they, they, uh, they're really not interested in anything until they know that you love them. And the connection between belonging and acceptance and love is, is really, really tight. It's, it's really, really hard to tell somebody that you love them without accepting them. 
In fact, you know, if you if you follow things like Brene Brown and her kind of work, there's a lot of research out there that says uh, people always, pretty much always, identify love with belonging. It, it's almost synonymous, actually. And a lot of people, they, 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 they've kind of been uh, burned in this respect that they have a really, really deep need to, to, to belong, to feel accepted, to, to feel the love of God in terms of acceptance in the community of God. But, but the problem is, is oftentimes before they've been able to belong and feel acceptance, they've been told that they first need to believe or behave a particular way. So to be a revolutionary place that says, you are actually welcome here, that is a significant expression of the love of God. To be able to say you're welcome and you're accepted, welcome home. That's a really, really big deal to us. It really is. Uh, follow. We talk about follow. See, one of the natural consequences, actually supernatural consequences of belonging in the house of God and finding a place of acceptance with his people is people rub shoulders with Jesus. And then before long, it's like, oh my goodness, following Jesus, maybe don't even know it, <laughs> hanging out with his people, rubbing shoulders with him, and before long, they start to believe and they follow. But Jesus, when he, when he was uh, looking for people, when he was looking for disciples, he was trying to bring the revelation of the Father, basically what he said to people was as simple as, come, come to me, follow me. That was it. And you know what? People were able to follow him even before they believed in him even before they fully knew who he was. He didn't turn people away at all. He, he said, come, let's go on a journey together. Let's do life together. And I, I'm meeting more and more people, actually, and I think it's probably my own life experience, too, where I, I was following Jesus before I could actually articulate who he was, before I actually really understood that he was my Savior, that it was his grace alone. Before I really understood that, I knew that he was there. I just didn't... I don't know, maybe have the language. I, I wouldn't have been able to have said I did the sinner's prayer. I know people who, who just almost accidentally find Jesus because they, they're like, wow, I've been following him. And, and then somebody's able to come along and say, actually, that person that you're engaged with, that's Jesus. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, and things connect for them. I don't know how it works, but it's Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's the one who's been sent to lead us to all truth. And he's come to testify of Jesus in people's lives. So if Jesus can just get you to say, yeah, I'll follow you, Holy Spirit can do the rest. So it's a really good deal. And then discover, once you're following Jesus, heck, even before you're following Jesus, you can discover who you are and who God made you to be. Part of that actually is following Jesus. He wants to unpack who you are to you. He wants the, the gift that you are to be unpacked to a community of people. Because you're, you're made on purpose. You were made on purpose as a unique expression of, of the person and the character and the nature and the gifting of God. And actually, the purpose that he has for your life is bound up in the way that he made you. So if you can be you, you can walk in your purpose. If you can be you and live out of the things that God's put in you and how he's made you, um, you're going to live a successful, fulfilled life. And you're actually going to find yourself living out the desires of your heart and realizing, wow, God actually put those there. I'm, I'm right where I should be when I'm following the desires of my heart. The problem is sometimes is that religion, life, uh, just stuff, relationships, bad experiences, disappointment, all these things can kind of just, maybe bad teachings can get in the way of you giving yourself permission to be who you are. So discover is a really big deal. It's a, it's a help. So sometimes you need help to know who you are. And that's okay. That's what we're, we're all about. It's a really big deal. So... Tonight, we're going to look at the last three verbs. You'll find this on page two. There's a few blanks on the pages just to keep everybody awake. I think I've made note of them where they are. If I skip over and go too fast, just give me a funny look or something. But the first one here, verb number five, is actually invite. And that, that, that's because of this. Once you've encountered Jesus, you want to invite others. I mean, that's, the, that's people's experience. That's what we see in the scriptures. So uh, John the Baptist, he's got some disciples who are with him. And uh, he said, Jesus comes and he's like, wow, there's the Lamb of God right there. Behold, look, there he is. That's the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples are, are, are just like, wow, well, we're, we're going to go. And Andrew, who sees Jesus, he's like, well, I'm going to go find my brother. I, I'm going to tell him I found the Messiah. 
And then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. He saw the Lamb of God. He had this encounter with Jesus. He saw him. He saw the way that John the Baptist just held him in such awe. And he was like, wow. I, his first response, I got to get my brother. Yeah. Amazing. The shepherds. This is actually really cool. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 17, it says, After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone. Prior to this, they'd actually been in a field tending their sheep, and angels appear out of nowhere, the glory of God. They're singing. There's, there's, there's this amazing event that goes on. But it says, after they saw Jesus. Wow, eh? There's just something about him. When you see him, when you connect with him, you just need to tell people. John chapter 4, verse 28 to 29. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. But it says, uh, this is the woman at the well. And it says, the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Not let me tell you. Interesting, eh? Not let me tell you all about him, but come with me. Come and see. That's amazing. See, this is the normal reaction of people who've been touched by Jesus at like an emotional level. When you know that you and your life are not the same, you want to share the news. When Jesus touches you, you want, you want to share it. It just activates something in you. You were made to lead people to Jesus. You were made to proclaim who he is. So when you see him, something in you comes alive, and that activator, that tell activator, that thing that's made in the image of God to display his glory, it just comes alive in you, and you're just like, man, i got to tell somebody. i got to show somebody. i got to bring somebody into the experience that I've had. So with that in mind, I want to ask you, what do you, what do you typically think of when you think of evangelism? Maybe it's like big crusades, or, uh, you know, Billy Graham, that kind of thing. If I'm being honest with you, when I think about evangelism, I, uh, I worked uh, at a church in England for a little while, and I was uh, an apprentice evangelist. I used to do street ministry uh, with people, and man, was it ever awful. <laughs> like, I, I was awful at it. I wish I had this. I wish I had somebody who, you know, cared about me discovering me, because they would have said, nope. Like, can, can you guys who know me, can you see me, like, singing on a street corner? Can you see me doing drama on a street corner? Yeah, like, no way. So, like, my, my, my memories are always, like, uh, just anxiety. I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. I actually got myself so messed up emotionally that I couldn't walk down the street without feeling like I needed to tell every single person about Jesus. And, and I remember having this kind of gut, like, wow, this is gross. This is awful. This kind of pressure is gross. But anyways, that's me. Hopefully that's not you. But uh, some people actually, actually, when you talk to them about evangelism, people either don't know where to start, don't know how to do it, freaked out a little bit by it, I, I, or say things like, I, I just don't know how I could talk to somebody about Jesus. That's actually pretty, pretty, uh, pretty common. Now, the reality is this. We live in a secular society. And I'm proposing to you that the, the model of evangelism that assumes that you can just go out there, have instant access to people, immediately communicate the gospel to them in a 30-second soundbite, a cold first-time encounter soundbite, lead someone to Jesus on the spot and then leave them and they live happily ever after, that does happen. There's lots of YouTube videos about that, but it's by far not the norm, right? That, that kind of thing does happen. Let's never not be open to that. Like, that kind of thing certainly does. But that, that really isn't the norm. There's, a, there's different things going on. Oftentimes when you see stories like that, and then you, you kind of poke around a little bit, there's, there's a backstory. Somebody else has done some work. But people out there, there's not a common biblical language. You know, there was a time when everybody went to Sunday school. Everybody knew something about Jesus somehow. Everybody knew Christmas and Easter and all that kind of stuff. And, and you, could, you could almost engage in a conversation, at least at a very superficial level. Whereas nowadays, there's a lot of people out there who don't have a clue. And frankly, don't want to. Which is uh, another story. So inviting people. I want you to, I want you to consider inviting people as, as another way, a very powerful, very effective way of evangelism. Inviting, and inviting people to church it actually has a lot to do with what you believe or what you expect about church. See, if you're going to invite somebody to church, you got to be excited about it yourself. you got to believe that it's, a, in fact, a place worth going to. 
You yourself have to be convinced why you go to church and what you're expecting when you go. So you can bring somebody else into that. So why invite people? What, what are people going to invite or what are they going to experience when you invite them to church? Well, one thing is people are going to experience the truth. See, we're worried about how to talk to Jesus. Bring people to church. 1 Timothy 3.15, it says so, um, talks about Paul. He says, if I'm delayed, you'll know how the people must conduct themselves in the house of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the foundation of truth. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. When you bring people to church, you're actually bringing them into an environment and into an atmosphere where they're going to encounter the person, Jesus Christ, who is truth. This, we are the place of ultimate reality. There's all sorts of stuff going on out there. There's all sorts of uh, alternate realities and, and alternate facts and all that kind of stuff. But here, we are connected with the God of the universe. We're connected with the God who, who made everything, has a purpose. He's the logos behind everything. When, when you bring people into church, they, they're having an experience, an opportunity to come into reality, to step into what's real. When you bring people to church, when you invite people to church, uh, the church is a place where there's, there's mutual strengthening and there's life-giving relationships and connections. That's where those kind of things are made, at church. So listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26 says, Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize. When you meet together, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in tongues, and another will interpret what's said. But everything that is done must strengthen all of you. Here's the thing, we, we can't be all things to all people. Maybe, maybe someone needs in their, their journey to coming to know Jesus, maybe they need something more than what you can give. Maybe they just need something different. I found that's particularly true with family members. You know, sometimes they kind of tune you out almost. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm always listening to that person. But if you say, hey, come to church. Come, come see, hear somebody else's story. Come, come get engaged with the church in general. So you see in Corinthians, there's, there's all these different people with different gifts. They're, they've got different expressions of their faith. They've got different, uh, different things that they're contributing. And when you bring people to church, you might just be facilitating that connection with somebody who's walking in something with God that that person needs that you might not at that moment be able to offer that person. It's a, it's a team sport. It really is. So, and, and, and the thing is, too, is the aggregate impact is strengthening and uplifting in an exponential way when people come and they're ministered to by people and not just a person. You know, it's really cool when people come and they say, lots of different uh, encounters I had with people. It was all the same. It was welcoming. It was loving. It was kind. You know, because it's not they on fluke met the kind person at the door. Is there's lots of kind people that that's like an exponential like wow, I'm I'm in I'm I'm somewhere special because this is a community of people. I didn't meet that random nice guy. There's a community of people who love. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah. I'm gonna find that person and put them at the door. I guess. But here's the, here's the most important thing, I think, about when the church gathers and why we need to invite people to church. And, and, and it's this. If, if this isn't true, then we should all go home. And that's this. The gathered church is where Jesus can be encountered firsthand. So Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather together as my followers, I'm there among them. We heard a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Carl, in the, in the sermon about praise, that, uh, uh, that he's enthroned in the praises of his people, not just persons. So you, you got to value the corporate anointing. You, know, you Be excited about it. Feel it. Benefit from it yourself. And something in you is going to awaken. And you're going to want to bring other people to it. See, we tell, we invite, we can connect people with Jesus. But eventually there comes this point where we have, to, we have to say, come and see for yourself. And there's just something amazing about that river. It just kind of swells. The living water inside of us. And there is a river that flows from the throne. And I think, I just, in my head, I picture it kind of swelling a little bit. We're not adding anything to it, but when we're here, it's just coming together. I think in, it, there's this amazing little portion in the Old Testament where it says that the Jordan River, it overflows its banks at harvest time. I think there's something about harvest and the, the river coming together and, and exponentially swelling. There's just something about coming to church and experiencing God in a way that I can't anywhere else. I value that. I, I covet that. I want that. I need that. In a strange way, I'm addicted to it. I, I, I need it. I want it. I, I want God, and I want people to see and feel and experience the same thing I have here. 
So the woman at the well again, she left her jar. She said, hey, everybody, come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Taste and experience. Paul kind of had this dynamic as well. See, she said, come and tell everybody, or come and see this guy who told me everything that I ever did. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, when when an unbeliever comes to your meeting and you prophesy the secrets of their heart, then they're like, wow, God's in our midst. You know, we see the, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock anything, but there's, you know, ideas where, you know, the, the supernatural gifts, the, the pinnacle of these expressions are in the grocery store. But here Paul's saying, you know what, unbelievers coming to church is a totally, uh, it's something that they were accustomed to, so much so that he had to give them instructions how to deal with it, and said, hey, here's the kind of thing that can happen. When people come to church, they experience God. So John 4, 39, 42, and many Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testifies. He told me everything I ever did. So that when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay, and he stayed there uh, two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, and this is the, this is the part to catch, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. See, harvest, that kind of thing, it happens. There's a biblical expectation that 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 kind of thing happens when people get to experience God for themselves in an unmediated way. When people get to come and experience the glory of God, which isn't to say this doesn't happen in our lives. By all means, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to share the virtue of what it means to gather on a Sunday and why it's so important to invite people. So Amos 9.11, it says, I'll restore David's fallen tent. I'll repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name. The days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. So there's a time coming when people are able to, to come directly into their own unmediated experience with the presence and the glory of God and the, the opportunity that that affords is, is a ridiculous harvest where you're harvesting faster than you can sow. And Jesus says, I'm going to rebuild that experience. We've heard a lot about the tabernacle of David. Remember, they could just go in. There was four pegs of sheet, and people could just walk in and experience God without all the, the, the technicalities of the law. Yeah. Wow, what a beautiful picture of church. So people get to come on a Sunday, come and experience the presence, the glory, the vibrant gathering. Because yeah. God and the signs of his life are present here. Fantastic. Here's one more thing about invite. When you invite some people, when you invite people to church, it's not a cop-out style of evangelism as if, like, I'm afraid to share the gospel. When you invite somebody to come to church, you're actually inviting them to be a disciple. See, to follow Jesus is to go where he is, to be a part of what he's doing and where he's doing it. And one of the aspects of being a disciple is that you get added to the church, and a first step in that discipleship process is actually coming to church. So Acts 2.47, all all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. People are being added to the church. Acts 2.41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized. They're baptized. They made a decision. They accepted Jesus and added to the church. There's a distinction there. So we, it's got to be a value for us. It really does. Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. If you think about assembling, uh, it is gathering. That is actually what it means, but a little play on words here. If you think about assembling as like assembling a toy, assembling a puzzle, assembling Ikea furniture or something like that. Ikea <laughs> For a, for a successful Christian life, for these people to go beyond just kind of making a decision and us setting up Christianity as the pinnacle of you coming to know Jesus is that you've put your hand up and made a decision one time while I'm praying with you, say, at my house, come to church is a good first step to, to actually being added to the church and assembling together, being assembled, being fixed together. So a su- successful Christian life, some assembly is required. You got to come, you got you to gotta bump, bump edges against other people and find where you fit. So why not start people off on that foundation by saying, come to church, come do the disciple thing right away, because that's what we got to do, make disciples, not just decision makers, right? All right, so that's invite. That's a, that's a really big thing. So we, we have cards to hand out. Uh, you probably saw the billboards. We do the, the internet, actually, the website. That's actually an amazing piece of invitation tool. A lot of people check that out before they come. Uh, There's special events. Every Sunday, come. 
we on purpose. You start. You'll see as we move along to later, uh, probably next month now. But as we get into the the actual ministries and some of the nuts and the bolts and some of the things, you're going to see the invite. The value of invite actually works itself out in very practical ways because when we invite people, we want to make sure that when they come, they have a really good welcome and a really good experience. And somebody who's gone to the trouble to invite someone. It feels like their efforts are honored, and the person who's actually taken that first step of discipleship and said, I'm coming to church, is actually going to have an amazing experience. They're going to be totally welcomed and loved on purpose. So it all kind of fits together. All right, verb number six. I think this is a blank, but it's give. And uh, this this is a quote from Pastor Cheryl. When Jesus broke the rules, when he upset the apple cart, challenged the status quo, he did so in order to illustrate God's priorities. See, Jesus coming, I hope you know this, he, he actually really did upset the, the system that was in place at the time. And he totally reshaped what people thought and believed uh, actually mattered to God. He came and brought it to almost a totally different picture of who God was and what his priorities were like. She goes on here, the religious elite of his day were masters of marginalization, discrimination, violence, hatred, often dressed up in the sheep's clothing of legal righteousness and religious zeal. However, one has only to look to Jesus, the fullness of God's self-disclosure, and the very explication of God to find an example of what divine priority really looks like. So Jesus shows us what God's really like, what he's really interested in, what really matters to God. We see in the life and the teachings and the person of Jesus the priorities of God. So we see something about God really, really clear when we understand that Jesus talked an awful lot about money. I think this is a blank as well, but one of every 10 verses in the Gospels deals directly with possessions, which is actually a lot when you think about the Synoptic Gospels, and a whole bunch of it's dedicated just to the Passion. 16 of 38 parables are concerned with how to handle possessions. So almost, uh, you know, almost half. And the Bible has 500 verses on prayer, 500 on faith, and 2,000 on money. There's twice as much verses about money as there is prayer and faith. And we know how important that is. So Jesus shows God's priorities. Not, not just, uh, not, he doesn't just talk about money either, but he talks about a right relationship to money. So Matthew 6, 31, 33, don't worry, he's saying, what should we eat or what should we drink? What should we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And that's certainly not a call to be negligent with money, as if like money's going to look after itself, but to seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. Let, let the priorities of the kingdom of God, let the priorities that you know and you see and you feel and experience in the heart of God, let the priorities that God has put in this place shape your relationship with money. It's not a call to, to whimsical, fantastical thinking, but partnership where kingdom values first filter through our financial affairs and our administration of our monies. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, is where your heart will be. Worship, uh, giving is very much uh, an expression of worship. It really is a holy moment. It has a very significant place in our church. Uh, when my wife and I came, we really, really loved when we came here for the first time. And every single week, intentional offering teaching, not just here's the bucket, but an intentional teaching about money. A lot of people are embarrassed about it, but Jesus wasn't. He went right at it. He talked about it because he knew the place it could hold in the human heart. And he knew when you were free from what it could do to you, then you were actually really free. (laughs) So remember the the widow's might? Jesus is is telling his disciples, look at everybody else who's putting in, you know, a lot, but it's proportionally, it's not that much. Look at the widow's might. She put in everything she had. How did he know? Because he was watching. He was watching the giving because it reveals the heart. Jesus actually really cares, and he's watching. And that's not like a, ooh, Jesus is watching you. Give more on Sunday. It's, he pays attention to that stuff. He cares about how you're doing financially. He really does. I like to hear. I, I don't know. I, I kind of grew up in a situation. I didn't hear a lot about money. I, I like it. I like to come. I like to hear. I like to hear about giving. I like to hear about it in a nice, healthy, clean place where it's not kind of pushed under the carpet. You know, it's, no, here it is, upfront, healthy, and it's all good. I like it a lot. So giving is really a, a holy moment. It expresses worship. And you know what? There's, there is two basic approaches to giving. 
Um, one is the I gotta give. And this, this looks like so many different things. This looks like I gotta pay the God tax, I gotta pay the heat bill at the church, and I gotta keep God from getting angry. It can even look like if I give, maybe God's gonna do something. As if you're trying to buy his favor a little bit, which I'll explain in a second, because actually God responds to your faith, not your manipulations. But I've got to give. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of pressure kind of associated with that way of giving. But there's also another way to give. There's a, I get to give. Yeah. Giving is very much an opportunity. Uh, Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there might be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out such a blessing that there won't be room enough to receive it. What an amazing invitation. So good. And you know what? There's lots of stuff in the Bible about tithes. There's lots of debate about, you know, the old covenant, new covenant. Tithing precedes the old covenant. It It precedes the old testament. It's a good thing to pray about. It's a good thing to work through. It's a good thing to, to, to get engaged in, to be honest. So listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. This is the Message Bible. And it says, Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves the person who gives cheerfully. So the, you must each decide in your own heart how much to give. That, that's an invitation in light of what went before. See, the person who sows a little reaps a little. The person who sows a lot gets a lot. It's an invitation. It's an opportunity to, to, to manifest faith, to have faith in God and say, you know what, I need a lot. I might sow proportionately. It's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation to partnership. And I love that my partnership matters. See, the, the, the way this works out with money is, is oftentimes people can get kind of religious with money. But here's the thing. Uh, if I give, if I engage with God in that supernatural cycle of blessings that we hear about, this supernatural cycle where God says, you give and I'll trust and I'm going to trust me and I'm going to look after you. When you do that, that, that's actually a partnership. That's God honoring me as a human being. Say, what you do matters. Your partnership here is actually significant to me. It matters. The thing that actually touches so many aspects of your life and your heart. What, what you're doing right now, I'm responding to what you're doing. I'm responding to the faith that you're expressing here. And I like that. I like that God cares about me. You know, he cares about me, but he engages me and he partners with me for real. Because if things just happened in my life without my partnership, I wouldn't really feel like a partner. I just kind of feel like, well, what's the point? God's just doing stuff anyways. But I've been elevated and given the dignity of partnering with God. And this get-to-give approach that we can engage in, it's got a couple things to it. First is purpose. You get to engage in something bigger than yourself. There's a list of things there, just for time's sake. You can look into those uh, on your own. But we do a lot of stuff that, uh, frankly, probably most of us on our own couldn't do. There's a whole bunch of things. Like, that that is a significant list. We have done significant things all over the world. And I know personally, I couldn't do those, but we can. It's amazing. When you give on purpose, or or when you get to give, when you embrace this get-to-give approach, you get to experience uh, an expression of obedience and faith tangibly. Obedience kind of has that kind of weird connotation to it sometimes, but uh, the act of obedience opens the door to the joy of obedience in other areas of your life. When you, when you step out in faith and you, you do as God's asking and directing and leading, it builds your faith, it expresses faith, and it helps you to be able to demonstrate and document God's goodness. Now, what I mean by that, faith comes by hearing, but sometimes the message that God wants to give you and the faith that he wants to impart to you through a word is a word that comes to you as you develop a history with him. Sometimes the word is, see, you gave, and look what I did. And there's faith that comes when you do that. It's a, it's a, it's a continuing uh, growing of that expression. You believe that he's going to come through for you. You put your seed in, and you believe, and he comes through. And all of a sudden, that's become something real solid that you get to carry around in your heart for the rest of your life. That's what God's done for me. And it becomes a story you can share with other people. All of a sudden, you're inviting people who are messed up financially. Hey, I know, I know a guy who can help you. Jesus. When you, when you do the get-to-give approach, you get to connect with his heart. You get to love why he loves and love as he loves. So John 3.16, I think this is a blank as well. For God so loved the world that he gave. gave. This is amazing. Generosity is just a part of God's nature. 
And it's awakened in us as we encounter the love that gave to me. And I'm empowered by the love of God inside of me to love like he does. And when I do, I'm going to give. I'm going to give him my time. I'm going to give him my talent. I'm going to give him my treasure. Because the love of God gives. It's not just an, an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's got some legs to it. It looks like something. When you embrace the get-to-give approach, there, there's a privilege here. You get to partner in his redemptive plan. See, God doesn't need what we have. We need what he has. Don't be generous emotionally. Be generous intentionally. See, there's fear that can move you to, to give. That's a negative emotion. There's hype that can move you to give as well. But be generous on purpose. Don't be kind of whimsical with it. Just on purpose. I've decided. See, the, 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 the love of God that saw him give his son, he didn't just decide one day out of a knee-jerk reaction, I think I'll give my son. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He had a plan. He planned to give. He planned to give his son. Incredible. It's an opportunity. It's not an obligation. And one of the blessings of this is when you're engaged in a partnership and you've, you've put your seed in the ground, when you've done that in this kind of partnership, you can rest and you can enjoy your life. And you don't have to live with that kind of anxiety like, oh, I don't know if I did my part. No. You, you've, you've trusted God. You've expressed your faith. Enjoy. Eat that pizza or whatever it is, right? <laughs> See, giving, it enables me to partner with God tangibly and from my heart. Because where my heart is, my treasure is too. I'm invested. When I'm engaged giving, I can rest assured that I've done my part. I can rest. I can enjoy the stuff he's freely given me to enjoy without worrying that somehow I've been stingy. His love in me and expressed through my giving shuts down the accuser and the selfishness that, that can sometimes get at you. It's just, a, it's really good. I've, I've got seed in the ground. I'm not going to worry. There's seed in the ground. And there will be seed. There will be time. And there will be harvests. When you embrace the get-to-give paradigm, then there's a, there's a pattern to your giving. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, let each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So when you give, there's a, there's a pattern. You give regularly. What's the first one there? Whatever that looks like. The get-to-give paradigm, when, you, when giving becomes a value for you, is something that you plan. It's something that you do intentionally. It's something that there's a regularity to. There can be a rhythm to. It doesn't have to be once a week, once a, you know, once a month, whatever it is for you. But there's a certain regularity. It's built into the rhythm of your life. Just like uh, an offering is built in, tithes and offerings is a built-in rhythm of what we're doing here. Every Sunday, you can come and you're going to see it. You're going to experience it. That can be a regular feature of your life as well. Give proportionately as you can and should. As they say, don't eat your seed and plant your bread. It doesn't work. God's given us all things freely to enjoy. You got to know what's seed. You got to know what's bread. Eat your bread, plant your seed. Right. And give passionately. God loves a cheerful giver, a free one who's not giving out of guilt, fear, or obligation, but whose heart is in it. Second Corinthians 9, 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you. I love that. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. I once walked away from the cathedral in Chester, England. I found, I found a pound on the ground, and I freaked out because I didn't immediately take like a 10 pence thing and stick it in the offering at the cathedral. And I was like, oh no, I didn't tithe. I'm doomed. You can let the grace of God, God's able to make all grace abound towards you that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So let the grace of God affect your giving too. You know, reject that fearful thing. Embrace it as an opportunity. Embrace the grace of giving, because it really is a grace. And let grace affect your, your expectations financially as well. I've got seed in the ground. God's gracious, loving promises that there's going to be a harvest. I will see it. It's coming. And don't, don't fret. Don't worry about it, right? Just believe. So here we got lots of ways to give. There's the website. You can e-transfer Pastor Cheryl. The details are there. We've got debit and credit card at the bookstore and the welcome counter. You can put cash in an envelope. We've got a tithe number system. You can find your tithe number in a blue book at the welcome counter or in the book center. There's intentional ways that we've made it so that you can engage this process because we really believe that giving is a significant thing in the kingdom. God so loved that he gave. And he wants to invite us into this opportunity of partnership. He doesn't need our stuff. He wants our hearts. He doesn't need our stuff. 
and he's given this amazing opportunity to be actually partners, not just partners in name, partners who, you know, their, their actions and attitudes have no consequences, but financially, this is the, the way that finances work in the kingdom is an amazing picture of partnership. It's real, it's practical, it's tangible, and what we do matters. So it's good, it's good. Uh, verb number seven, last one tonight, and that's this, serve. Now serve, it's an attitude and it's an action, and it's something that we both see in the, we see both of these in the life of Jesus. So Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28, Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and those who are great exercise over authority over them, it, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, he came to serve us. It's so backwards to what you would expect of a mighty king. He came to serve. And his greatness, it wasn't diminished by stooping down to service. His greatness, it was highlighted, it was seen, and it was expressed in his service. Servant leadership, we see it in Jesus, and it's a big deal here too. And in servant leadership, we're all called to greatness. We're called to be servant leaders in the kingdom, and arguably the greatness in you that Jesus has invested in you, the greatness in your innate being created in the image of God, it's not going to find expression in you if you're constantly attempting to maximize yourself and your own interests. And serving is a fantastic way to say, I choose love. I put others above me. I find a way to express the love of God in me by investing my time and my energy in benefiting other people. It's so good. So John 13, verse 3 and 5, or 3 to 5, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything, that he'd come from God, that he would return to God. So this is what he did. When he knew that he had all authority over everything, when he knew where he came from, when he knew where he was going, what he did was not stand up and say, everybody, look how awesome I am. That's not what he did. He got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around them. Fantastic. We serve because, like Jesus, we know who we are, what we're equipped with, what we're equipped to do, and we know where we're going. Jesus was clearly a whole, healed, sound person. And if you know who you are, this is why discover is really, really important. When you know who you are, uh, you're free from petty self-preservation and, and numbing, and you're not engaged in life uh, around this nexus of what I can take from other people, but you're, you're outwardly looking. You're looking, what can I give? How can I serve? How can I give my strength? How can I help somebody else to become better? How can I engage the purpose of God here? How can I give my strength here? That becomes an attitude in you. It becomes something that, you know, let that mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. There's, there's a humility that looks out for the interests of others that is the basis of real serving because serving is self-giving. And it really is the, the basic nature of who God is. And we can pour ourselves out into others and for others. It's not a waste of time. It's not a drain. It's not a burden because we know that we're completing Christ. We have an unexhaustible resource of the life and the love of God inside of us. I'm not diminished by giving anything. I'm not diminished by giving my time. I'm not diminished by uh, expending energy in a relationship. I've, I, I got a well that doesn't run dry. So there's, a, there's an interesting article I came across here when it comes to serving. I thought it fit. But it's Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. Never read the book, never read the article, so my endorsement stops here. <laughs> and I'm going to qualify that. <laughs> But he says, being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is. Now, I think our union with Jesus is what makes us fully human, one with the Son of Man, you know, the prototypical human. But there's something about humanity that's not fully, you know, a fully restored human identity uh, or, or that's not underdeveloped and unexpressed if you're not engaged in service to others. See, so much of, of human identity, although a kind of countercultural to kind of what we hear where it's all about me and what I want, a lot of human identity actually has to do with you defining yourself in relationship to others 
and how you serve others. It's actually kind of how your own development of identity happens. It's the I-thou thing. It's who am I as I'm in relationship to others. So Paul says crazy things like, we preach Jesus Christ and us, your servants. He preached himself as a servant because it was a big deal to him. Part of his identity was, I serve other people. I get this amazing privilege. This is who I am. My relationship to you, I'm going to talk about it because Jesus has filled me so completely that now I can exist giving and serving you. Wow, look what he did for me. I'm so whole. I'm so complete. I exist to bless you and benefit you. And he says things to like, like, wow, you guys are kings. I wish we were kings like you. But he gave himself for people. He gave himself to people because he knew who he was. He knew he was complete. It's amazing stuff. Galatians 5.13, it says, For you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only don't use that liberty as an opportunity to, for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So we're totally free. Yeah. We're absolutely free. We're, we're free to make choices to live and to love, but I'd argue that real freedom is expressed when we're primarily free from our own selfishness and self-interest. For me, that's what true freedom looks like. Freedom is something that God is and he gives. And God is love. Freedom looks like love. And Jesus has given us, he's worked into his grand cosmological plan, the opportunity to serve and the opportunity to live looking outward and looking for ways to serve and love each other. He said, I'm building my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. But he says, I'm going to do this by my spirit, but it's going to be by my spirit in those people. It's going to be by his spirit in us. That's how he's going to do it. Great big grand cosmological plan, not going to happen without us embracing the inner life, the self-giving love, the serving love of God inside of us. So Ephesians 4 says, Grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. When every part does its share, it causes growth for the body, for the edifying of itself in love. Two quick things to note about that. First of all, it's the joints that supply growth, the quality of our connection to other people is going to impact our effectiveness. And the reason why I bring that up is because you see how these things are starting to interconnect? Connection's a big deal. Belonging's a really big deal. It's not just a, an evangelism tool to get people in and let them know that they feel loved and belong. We all have an ongoing need to, to belong and to be connected with one another. I love Brene Brown. She, is, she defines connection as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued when they can give and receive without fear or judgment in relationships, and when they feel that they derive sustenance and strength from their relationship. That's a, that's a, that, for me, is a really good picture of what that looks like for people connected and joint supplying. If you, if you focus on letting the quality of your connection with other people grow, you recognize your unity, that you're already together, you're already one more than you're ever apart. And based on the, the, the mutual love of God inside of one another, the same spirit of God in each other, you start to get involved with people and you start to uh, love and you, you start to be able to give yourself and your time and your energy and all of your encounters with people is, I want you to feel valued. I want you to feel seen. I want you to be heard. That, that's the kind of connection that supplies stuff. That's the kind of connection with people that, that makes things grow. Now, the other thing about this, which kind of fits serve a little bit better, is this. Every part. It says every part does its share. Not just leaders or those, those people over there. Not, not me, not you. All of us. So the message there is don't, be, don't feel inferior. Don't feel like your part doesn't matter. And don't think that uh, you're the one who's going to bring it all home. Right? Because right? it's all of us. So there's this thing called the Pareto Principle, also called the 80-20 Rule, the law of the vital few, and the principle of factor sparsity. It states that for many events, roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. And what that means is this. Basically, 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. So in a church of roughly 400, what that would look like, just hypothetically, that would mean that 80 people are responsible for making everything happen. That's not true at Impact Church. It's fantastic. We've got more than 80 people involved. It's really, really good. But just think about that. Jesus himself is saying through the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, we're going to get there when every part does its share. But the Pareto Principle is telling us most things out there that you see is actually only 20% of the people. 
could you imagine, like, just think about throughout history the good that the church has done could, with, with just 20% of its, its body actualized? Could you imagine what we would look like on planet Earth with 80% of people actualized, living out of their true identity, their calling, and just living life fully? Can you imagine? That's fantastic. So we want to remove that principle out of the impact church world completely. We want 100% moving together, causing his glory to reach maximum effect. And Jesus has a place for each one of us. You can know yourself, you can know God, you can know your gifts, callings, and you can own them. So Paul said, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one in the body, just as he pleased. See, we all have ministry gifts. We all, we all been made on purpose in a particular way. So don't despise or marginalize yourself or the gifts that God's given you. Don't think, man, I wish I was this or I wish I was that. No, own that place in the body. Because if God's put you here, if God set you and fixed you here, your role here is absolutely vital. So 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. The importance of discover. Discovering your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, unpacking your experience and what you've learned through that. We need to invest in stuff like this, and we do. We really do. That's the whole discover track. And when you serve like this, it's actually fulfilling, and it's actually life-giving. Jesus says that if you take his yoke, it's easy, and the burden that he gives you is light. So he speaks of work. He's not ashamed. He's like, you know what? There is work to do. There's a burden. There's a yoke. But I love the Message Bible. It says you can learn the unforced rhythms of grace. There's a, there's a flow. It's kind of like that light summer breeze, that south, warm south wind that comes up behind you and kind of moves you in that right direction, where challenges and difficulties kind of are energizing. They come. They certainly do. But when you're in that sweet spot where God's put you and you're flowing in that rhythm of grace, life can just kind of flow. You can kind of roll with the punches a little bit, not, a, you know, not live in crazy town, like nothing, nothing real ever happens, but you're energized by it. You, 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 you experience and you embrace and you welcome the grace of God, knowing that when you're weak, then you're strong. That's the kind of thing that happens when you're flowing in that place that God's put you. It's good stuff. It really is. Now, the last thing I say about serving is this. Don't, don't compartmentalize. Embrace all the gifts. Embrace everything that God's given you. If, if it's, uh, you know, you're good at working with your hands, with your hands, don't despise it. Don't think to yourself, man, I wish I was that person, or I wish I could do this or that. Don't do that. And uh, don't, don't, particularly, don't fall into that trap of, man, I wish I had that more spiritual thing going on. All of life is spiritual. Whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God, whatever. And you're actually not going to be fulfilled trying to be somebody else or do what somebody else does. You don't want to do that. You really don't. And you can find out the hard way, or you can just... Take somebody's word for it. <laughs> but you don't want to do it. So it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And that's actually spiritual. It doesn't talk about gifts. Sometimes when you're thinking about serving, you narrow yourself down and you say, I can only do this or I can only do that in the church or in my life because I'm, I, this is spiritual or this is my spiritual gift or, or this, that, and the other thing. But the Holy Spirit, you're never going to get more spiritual than him. And he's called the helper. He just gets involved and helps people. And if you don't know who you are and you're still unpacking that and you don't know what your gifts are and stuff like that, one of the best ways to find out is just try stuff. Just get involved and do things. I found out that I am not very good at kids camp. I'm actually awful at it. I found out. I tried. Every, oh, sorry, Kelly says everybody should try it, though. That's a lesson we all need. So don't, don't, don't be ignorant. When he says don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts, don't be ignorant about your role in the body. You're a spiritual being. God made you that way. He's made you on purpose. Don't be ignorant about what you, what you, who, he, who he made you to be. Just, just be you. Love other people. Get engaged. Invite, give, serve. Do the surveys at the back. Do the uh, get a volunteer package. We can have a conversation, a discussion about what that looks like for you. Um, but yeah, get started. Let's serve. Invite, give, serve. Amen. Well, that was all right, eh? Was that all right? That was good. Yeah. All right. So you know what we get to do now? Get to 
to eat ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Well, Father, we love you. We love this journey we're on together, and we love what you're doing here, and we're excited about the way things are expanding and uh, just the opportunities before us as a people and a movement. And Lord, this all means, Father, it means all hands on deck. It just means everybody come on, because this is so much bigger than any one of us, and what you want to do in and through us is multiplying quickly. The Spirit of God's blowing upon it. It's advancing swiftly. And so, Father, we thank you. We can hear the rustle in the mulberry trees. We know the move is on right now. It's a big deal. So, Father, we just thank you. Thanks for Zach sharing that with us. Thanks for the, uh, the, the real intentionality that there is about us doing fellowship, that we're not carelessly dwelling together, but we're dwelling on purpose. And every person is significant. Every person is important. Every person is valued. And every person is absolutely accepted and appreciated. So Father, bless and thank you for this time. Sink it deep in our culture and our fellowship. Let it be something that's modeled and demonstrated and lived out in Jesus' precious name. Amen.